Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Big E here. This is Law for Virginia Law Enforcement Officers. We're talking about what you need to know as a law enforcement officer in Virginia to better strengthen and serve your communities. And today, it's episode 67, we're talking about two cases that came out in the last couple of weeks regarding geofence warrants. And whether you know what these are or not, both of these rulings are very significant and will have a lot of impact in Virginia and actually probably throughout the U.S., even though both of the decisions were issued by courts that really have no binding authority over uh, over most of the Commonwealth of Virginia. So I want to talk in depth about these cases today. And again, I think that the lessons from these cases are going to apply to you whether or not you do geofence warrants or whether or not you even know what one is. Uh, because they're really cases that are about the fundamentals of the Fourth Amendment and the fundamentals of search warrant writing generally. So let's dive into it. What are these cases all about? And it's probably worth starting out by sort of talking about uh, what is a geofence warrant in the first place? Uh, what does that mean, a geofence warrant? Well, <clears throat> obviously, we could talk about this for a long time, but I want to try to give you a, a brief description of it. And I think the best way to describe it would be to describe the problem that the officers faced in this federal case called U.S. versus Chatry uh, that Judge Lauk issued an opinion on from Richmond, from the Richmond U.S. District Court uh, on March the 3rd. And the problem that the officers faced in this case was they had a bank robbery. Uh, a guy walked into a bank. He was holding a gun and a cell phone. And he walked up to a teller and said, uh, I have someone on the other line who is holding your family hostage, and I want $200,000. Uh, they gave him, obviously, $200,000, and he left. And that's basically it. They don't, they don't have any other information about him. Um, they know he had a phone in his hand, and they know that he walked from a nearby church to the bank and then walked back to the nearby church, got into some kind of vehicle or something, and left the area. And that's pretty much all they knew about him. So they tried following up with some leads, but really nothing panned out. And it was at that point that they turned to what's called a geofence warrant. Now, some of you, of course, everybody here, I think, probably knows the idea of doing a cell phone warrant, right? I'm going to get a, a warrant for someone's cell phone or cell, cell location data. And most of you know, too, I can get an IP address search warrant uh, if I'm trying to find the IP address that somebody has been using when they're using an internet service. Uh, some of you may also know that there's something called a tower dump, which is, let's say, for example, we had a homicide. It was an unsolved homicide. I might, and it took place at 5 p.m. on Friday, I might go to the cell phone company and say, I know where this homicide took place. Can you tell me every phone that was hitting off of this tower at 5 p.m.? And then <clears throat> that will help me narrow down who the suspects in my case might be, who might be in the, might have been in the area at 5 p.m. So what's a geofence warrant? Well, a geofence warrant is a warrant that is directed to an internet provider, usually Google, uh, but you'll see that there's other companies as well that you could send a geofence warrant to, asking Google what devices were connected to Google services within this particular area at the time of this offense, right? So if, again, if this offense took place at 5 p.m. on a Friday, uh, what Google, who was logged into Google, let's, let's see if we can narrow down who was logged into Google services so we can get the identity of this person who was robbing this bank. Now, you may say, well, that can't be that many people, right? Not that many people are using 
uh, their Gmail account or Google Maps or whatever at the time. But as it turns out, <clears throat> Google is pretty much always tracking you if you are signed into a Google account on your phone, whether it's an Apple iPhone or an Android device. Uh, they're pretty much tracking you all the time. And they track you about 20 times a day. And they're tracking because it uses GPS, cell tower location, and Wi-Fi networks in the area, can actually locate you with, to within th about three meters, about three yards. That's pretty good, right? So about 20 times a day, it's, it's sort of looking online and seeing, is recording where you are. You can go online, you can go to your Google account, right? You can log into your Google account and say, I want to see my location history. And you can see this information online. It's available for you. Uh, Google, in fact, claims that they track this information for your benefit. And they're pretty much just holding it sort of in trust for you. Now, of course, that's hilarious. There's no way that they're doing that, right? Google is not a charity organization. They do not exist uh, as some 501c3 designed to help people, you know, who are lost and need to know where they are. Google is a company that is designed to make money. And they sell this information to all sorts of people uh, who want to market to you, but also just want to know about marketing generally, right? Where do I build a a Target, where do I build a CVS, where do I build a Starbucks, right? You've all seen a Starbucks built across the street from a Starbucks, and you know they both do plenty of good business because, uh, you know, Starbucks has, has gathered marketing data, and they've gathered it from companies like Google. So I could get a warrant for Google, just like I could do a tower dump, and say, tell me what devices were operating in this area at the time. And that's what these officers So what exactly is it that they did? Well, what they did was they took a warrant, and then they drew a circle with a 150-meter radius encompassing the bank, the church, and the church parking lot nearby. And the circle covered about 71,000 square meters of land around the bank. And this was in a pretty busy area of the Richmond metro area. So it was a pretty big circle, and it caught a lot of people. And that'll be important when we talk in a second. Then they got a search warrant asking Google to give them the location data for every device within the area. Now, these warrants have been going on for many years, and there's really not a lot of law about them. There's probably only about maybe four or five cases. None of them are court of appeals cases. They're all district court cases. None of them have reached any uh, appeals courts in, in the state or in the federal system yet. So to come up with law, Google invented their own process, and Google enforces this process. What they do is they will give this information to law enforcement, but in three steps, in order to protect the privacy of their users, right? Because what they don't want to do is say, anytime law enforcement asks, we'll tell them every single user who was in this area at the time. That would obviously be a pretty big invasion of privacy, um, especially since, you know, people were driving to work or going home or going to church or whatever, and had nothing to do with this crime, right? So what Google does is, in step one, they give a de-identified list, an anonymous list of all Google users whose location history data indicates that they were within that geofence during the time uh, that the law enforcement is asking for here. And then law enforcement steps back and takes a look at that, uh, at that anonymous list and says, okay, here are the users that we want some more information about. We want These are the ones that seem to be suspicious to us. We still don't necessarily have probable cause that this particular person is the perpetrator, but how do we eliminate people off the list? So we've looked at this list of 
who's in the area, we've looked at the information that you've sent us, and maybe these five or these 10 people are of particular interest to us. Let's see if we can narrow it down. So how do you narrow that down? Well, one of the things that you do, right, is that you go back to Google and you say, okay, these five or 10 users are interesting to us. These might be our perpetrator. Can you tell us more about these people? For example, can you give us, you know, where did they go before or where did they go afterwards? How long were they in the area? Um, you know, because if they were in the area for a very long time and stayed in the area for a long time after the bank robbery, that's not our perpetrator, right? Uh, maybe it's somebody who works at the church or somebody who works at the bank or, uh, you know, somebody who lives nearby, somebody who works there. Uh, that's not going to be our perpetrator, right? So that's step two. And then in step three, law enforcement says, okay, now I've figured out who are my people who are innocent and I've narrowed down to, okay, this is likely to be, these maybe one or two people are likely to be my perpetrator. Let me know who these people are. So that's what happens in this case. At the third step, uh, and, and, and it's very important to understand at this point, uh, that law enforcement gets a search warrant from a magistrate, a Virginia magistrate here, for all three steps. In other words, the, the warrant authorizes law enforcement to go through each step with Google all in one warrant. So the warrant authorizes law enforcement to uh, go to Google, get an anonymous list, take that anonymous list, look through the anonymous list, go back to Google, give them more information about particular users, then examine the more information, and then go back to Google and get the actual identity of a specified, you know, couple, handful of users, one or two users at the end. All of that is authorized in one warrant. So <clears throat> law enforcement uses this process. Uh, Google sort of objects to how law enforcement does it. They make them narrow it down. But ultimately, they're able to figure out it's this guy named Chatri who committed the robbery, and he is locked up and prosecuted. And the defense moves to suppress the evidence. And that's where we get to the issue of, is this warrant lawful? Now, the litigation about this issue has actually taken the last couple of years, believe it or not. Part of that's a pandemic. It's just delayed the case. But part of it is uh, lots of people have come in and testified. The you know ACLU and the Electronic Frontier Foundation have hired expert witnesses to come in and testify. Google has filed briefs and they came and they testified and they sent several witnesses to testify. Uh, the magistrates uh, filed briefs. Uh, the magistrate system in Virginia, they wanted to be heard too. So they filed briefs. Everybody wanted to be heard in this case. And the FBI sent witnesses and so on. So Ultimately, what's the ruling from the court, from Judge Lauk? Here, Judge Lauk uh, denies the motion to suppress on good faith grounds, but more important to us, concludes that although the warrant uh, was you know, ultimately sustained for good faith, the warrant was invalid because it did not meet the Fourth Amendment standard for particularized probable cause. And what that means for us in the future is if we're going to seek a geofence warrant in the future, we have to get a separate search warrant at each step of the three-step process that Google has set. And in addition, the court said that they the court is going to very strictly regulate the size of the, the geofence and also the time frame that is sought in the geofence in order to respect people's protected movements and their residences. Um, here, the court complained that the geofence captured location data for users who may not have been remotely close enough to the bank to participate in or witness the robbery uh, because of the size of the warrant, right? Um, ultimately, the, the defendant was able to establish that because of the confidence 
interval, the the sort of error rate, whatever, for the the geofence warrant, it basically was about three, uh, four football fields large, which was way too, you know, the court found to be way too large. And again, it captured uh, not just the bank and the church parking lot, but it captured a Ruby Tuesday, a Hampton Inn Motel, uh, some units of an apartment complex, a self-storage business, a senior living facility, two busy streets, and uh, some residences that were in sort of the uh, range of error, the confidence interval of this geofence warrant. And the court complained, too, that the warrant was ultimately seeking at stage two, when they go back for more information, about two hours of location data for individuals who, you know, may only have basically just driven by the bank at the time. And the court didn't like that. Uh, The court was very uncomfortable with that. The court here found that people have a reasonable expectation of privacy in their movements and cited Carpenter versus United States for, uh, to, 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 to make that argument, that people have that reasonable expectation of privacy in their movements. Now, again, the court here said that this warrant was protected by good faith, that the officer couldn't possibly have known that the court was going to rule it was invalid. And I think that's fair. Uh, you know, there's, <laughs> there's so little law about this that it's very difficult for police to know what a court is and isn't going to rule. But the court warned that in the future, uh, warrants like this one uh, that authorize basically a search of every person within an area must establish probable cause to search those people. You must give probable cause to do that. And here, the warrant didn't include any facts to establish probable cause to collect uh, broad, intrusive location data from each person. There's a case the court cited called Ibarra, and this is, we're going to mention this when we talk about the Fairfax case in a moment, that was a search of a bar that we, where officers knew that there was heroin being sold. And in Ibarra, officers got authority from a magistrate to search the bar and every person inside, like an all-persons present warrant. And the court said, you know, you can search the bar, but if you're searching every person inside the bar, you need probable cause to think that any person inside that bar is going to have the evidence. And they didn't have that in that case. The court extends that case Ibarra, which is a 1970s case, to this case and said, sure, there's a fair probability that the geofence warrant is going to give us the location of the suspect. But we're also capturing unrestricted location data for private citizens uh, who had no reason, the government had no reason to, um, to, to look at. And what that means then is that each step of the process needs to be supported by a separate search warrant. Step one, step two, step three of the process needs to have a separate search warrant. Uh, and in fact, by the way, I'm talking about this three-step process. People have observed that there is sort of a step 1.5 as well recently uh, going through Google. If you are kind of, if there's another step in your process that you've noticed recently with Google, be aware that step 1.5 is probably also going to need to get a warrant, a, a separate warrant. So you're looking at as many as four warrants uh, at each step of the process, establishing probable cause to get that information. If with Because they didn't have a second, a separate warrant for step two and step three, the court here found that the executing officers had basically unbridled discretion to decide to talk to Google and say, this is who we want follow-up information on. This is what you want. we want you to send us. And no court was looking at that list. No court was agreeing or disagreeing or had the chance to agree or disagree with law enforcement that, um, that these users should, that Google should provide follow-up information for these users. 
And the follow-up information, again, is much more information. It's more particularized. It can help you identify them. It gives their uh, more of their location data, more of their movements, and so on. The court here wants, uh, wants to be involved, wants a separate warrant to limit the number of devices to determine which accounts would be subject to further scrutiny. Um, at each round of requests, there should be a new warrant. And um, again, the court here found what they just, the court here writes, even anonymized location data from innocent people can reveal, the court writes, astonishing glimpses into private lives of individuals when the government collects data across even a one or two hour period. It was effective here. The defendant uh, was able to get an expert to come to court who could look at the anonymized Google data and using that basically identify two or three people and say, I know using social media searches and public record searches and so on, I've already figured out who these people are just based on the anonymized data. And that really was problematic for the court. The court uh, found that very troubling. Um, there are some people who have argued in their geofence warrants that they're not just looking for the perpetrator of the crime, but oftentimes looking for witnesses, right? Remember we described the murder case, the murder that happened at 5 p.m. on Friday, and we were trying to figure out who committed the murder. Um, it would be just as useful for us to locate not just the murderer, but also witnesses. And so we might make the argument in our search warrant application uh, that anybody who in the area who might have seen the, the, uh, might have seen the murder is some, I have probable cause to find that person as well because that person could, um, you know, give me information, would be evidence of the crime, right? Would provide me evidence of the crime. Um, the court here dodges that issue because in this case, the officers did not make that claim, didn't make that argument in their affidavit. Uh, the court said here, even if the court were to assume that a warrant would be justified on the grounds that a search would yield witnesses instead of perpetrators, uh, here there was no suggestion that um, that there were witnesses in the affidavit. So again, the court here finds that this geofence warrant is saved by good faith, but the court nonetheless strongly cautioned that this exception may not carry the day in the future. The court wrote, we, uh, the court would not simply rubber stamp geofence warrants, and the court said that the government must in the future take care to establish particularized probable cause. So, I mean, for the takeaway, you know, what would you say? Okay, so what's the lesson from this case? I would say the court here especially points to a couple of different cases. One's from the Northern District of Illinois, which a lot of us have cited. And then another one is a December case uh, from just this past December, December 30th of last year, uh, 2021 which was a, another geofence warrant case, that was a federal court that found that the geofence warrant was proper uh, and, and was properly followed. In that situation, um, there was a warrant at each step, right? So the government reviewed the data, then it went back to the court and said, okay, at stage two, I want a separate warrant. And then the court at its discretion could order Google to disclose to the government personally identifiable information for the devices that belong to likely suspects. And then uh, to go back again, you'd have to demonstrate to a court again that the location data for a particular user or a particular set of users would provide evidence of the crime. And the court would decide which users would be disclosed, not just Google and law enforcement together with no additional warrant. 
Um, obviously, you are going to have to start out with Google by getting an anonymous data list, right? There's no way to do this any other way. And that is going to capture some innocent people. The court says is not saying here, oh, there's no way you can even start out at step one because you're getting an anonymous list of people. But the court here, you know, I, I ultimately, I think, you know, likes the idea uh, that Google is providing anonymous data because it protects individual users. And then law enforcement follows up, does more investigation and finds uh, probable cause to follow up on individual users. Again, it's going to be really important to limit the size, though, and the scope of the, of the warrant to make sure that it is valid. And that really brings us to the second case I wanted to talk about which is a local circuit court ruling from Fairfax County on February 24th of 2022. This was a ruling from Judge Oblon, where Judge Oblon denied a geofence warrant, but wrote a rather lengthy opinion about it. And it's interesting, you know, Judge Oblon's opinion, he issues his opinion on February 24th. Uh, the opinion in U.S. versus Chatri is handed down by the federal district court on March 3rd. But if you read Judge Oblon's opinion from February 24th, he basically says almost exactly the same thing that Judge Lauk says in her opinion. Uh, a week before he says this, uh, he just says it in a much more succinct fashion. When he denies this warrant, again, what do we have? We have a shooting. Interestingly, the shooting takes place at a motel. And again, Fairfax County Police want to identify who's involved with this shooting. They ask for a specific set of uh, they, they draw a geofence again. Here, the fence surrounds the motel, parking lot, and adjoining spaces. Now, you can already imagine, the court's not going to like this, because a motel, under the Fourth Amendment, a hotel is your residence for the period of time that you're staying there. And what that means is that's going to be a, very, a highly protected place, the most protected place under the Fourth Amendment. And then the police wanted to have information for a three-hour period. Now, again, you can imagine the court's not going to like this, right? A shooting takes place over a short period of time. A three-hour period of who's staying at this motel and who's moving at this motel, court's not going to like this, and the court and the officers are asking for all three steps in one warrant. Based on everything we've just talked about, it's not going to be a surprise to you that the court says that the warrant would be unconstitutional and refused to issue the geofence warrant. Uh, like Judge Lauk, the court cites the Ybarra case from the 1970s and likened the innocent motel guests to those innocent bar patrons in Ybarra and said police cannot search innocent motel guests any more than they can search innocent bar patrons, even if you have probable cause to believe there's evidence somewhere at the bar or the motel. Again, the court finds that the application was overbroad and not particularized. Because it was geographically too large, the search time was too long, and the nature of the place to be searched was too sensitive. Um, and so because it wasn't restricted to times when the suspects appeared in the video footage, uh, the court was, uh, was not willing to issue the geofence warrant. It was also really important to the court, too, that at step two of the process, at step three of the process, that the police were saying that they would go direct with Google without going back and getting additional court authorization to determine who should Google provide them additional information on? Who should Google give them uh, more information about their movements before and after the geofence? Where do they go before? Where do they go after? What are their other movements? Uh, how, you know, that kind of thing. That kind of follow-up here, the court complained again. The police are not limited in their discretion in selecting uh, the devices that they deem relevant. 
the police are left with considerable discretion to select any phone, any device, without any meaningful limits on which phones they may choose. And so law enforcement essentially could unilaterally determine the relevancy of the cell phone and could unilaterally enlarge the court-authorized search zone. And then, of course, step three also wouldn't have an additional warrant. The court objected to the discretion at step three, uh, where, again, law enforcement would have the authority unilaterally without any court approval to tell Google which cell phones it wants to unmask, basically say, okay, we figured out which ones we think uh, we have probable cause to believe are the perpetrator or maybe the perpetrator, fair probability this is the perpetrator. Uh, give us the identity of these people, right? Because step three is where you get the identity, the actual identity of the Google user. And here, Judge Oblon writes that the court must be the entity to approve or deny the unmasking and disclosure of the personal identifying information of people to be searched. So again, you have sort of almost exactly the same ruling from a local Fairfax court that you do from Judge Lauk in Richmond. Um, and indeed, that's not inconsistent with other rulings from other courts on these issues, right? So we talked about the D.C. Circuit Court, um, uh, District Court, rather, uh, opinion that was issued on December 30th. Um, and there again, um, that was a, that was interestingly, by the way, that was actually a two-step warrant. Um, but again, the theory was the same. The court was, you know, at each stage of the process, the government was going back and getting additional warrants. I would not recommend, just because the court cited the D.C. case, which had a two-step warrant process, I would not recommend doing just two steps. I would say at every three, you know, Google at this point has identified three steps, pretty officially defined three steps. Um, both of the Virginia courts now, Judge Oblon and Judge Lauk, identified three steps, have talked about getting authorization at each three steps. I would just get a separate warrant at each step, right? I wouldn't mess around with, oh, well, but the D.C. court said two was okay. Don't, that's just not, a, I don't think that's a, a safe course of action based on the language that both these courts use. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. There are two cases from the Northern District of Illinois that faced these questions as well. And both of these cases came out in 2020, and those cases are cited by uh, both the Fairfax Court and the, and the Richmond Court, and in fact, even also the D.C. Court. And it's really interesting to, to put those next to each other, because in the Northern District of Illinois cases, in one case, the court approved the geofence warrant, and the other case, the court did not approve of it. So let's talk about the case where the court did grant the geofence warrant in Illinois, because again, the courts favorably cite that case, say that was a, that was a good ruling. Um, that was a case where the government sought geofence data in connection with an arson investigation. There were 10 arsons in the Chicago area, which appeared to target specific commercial lots. And so they asked for geofence data for six target locations that would contain evidence pertaining to the identity of the arson suspects and their co-conspirators, right? Here, um, again, the court, you know, they talk about the whole multi-step process, but but notice in this case, officers were going to be able to go to Google and say, hey, we know that there's going to be a handful of devices or one device that will be unique to all of these, all of these different arsons. And it's going to be really strange to say, you know, that some innocent person would happen to be at the sites of all uh, all uh, 10 or, or all six of these arsons that we've located. 
So we're looking for the common devices between all six of these arsons. And here the court says, well, that makes sense, right? Clearly there, we've got particularized probable cause to believe that that device that was at the site of all six of the arsons was, the was we at least have probable cause, a fair probability to believe, it's reasonable to believe that that is going to be a person involved in the arsons, right, under the totality of the circumstances. And that's a perfect example there about where I think you're going to have uh, you know, no problem getting a warrant from a court. Uh, and again, you'll have to deal with Google and that's always difficult and it's always a problem. But, you know, I don't think anybody would disagree that there, yeah, of course, we've got probable cause uh, to get a geofence warrant in that case to find the common device between all six different warrants. I mean, all, 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 all six different um, arsons. And um, here again, the court was, was happy too because the geofence area was small, the time frame was small, and, um, and interestingly, again, the court also approves of this because the agents were able to articulate, hey, whoever this person was who's showing up in all six of the arsons, maybe they're not the perpetrator of the crime, but at the very least, they're probably a witness to the crime. And there's probable cause to believe that that witness has evidence of the crime. So even if they weren't the perpetrator of the arson, they were at all six scenes of the arsons. And that seems to indicate to us that they've got some evidence about it. So that would also be a basis to issue the warrant. And the court uh, here found that was important as well and said, yeah, that is, uh, that's also a good reason to issue the, the geofence warrant in this case. Now, like I said, uh, the Northern District of Illinois court, and when this, at the same time that they issued this ruling, also issued another ruling denying a geofence warrant, uh, pretty much the same reasons that you would see in Judge Lauck's opinion and Judge Albo's opinion that we talked about today. So a lot of controversy about this. It's a very controversial topic. Uh, I know that you know a lot of people have strong opinions about it and so on, and it's um, probably going to be the subject of some legislation or some attempted legislation, either the state or federal level in the future. But... Uh, this is an important tool for law enforcement, and oftentimes it may be the only way that you can identify the perpetrator in a serious crime. So I hope that today's two cases give you a better roadmap on how you can lawfully obtain this information in the future in the Commonwealth of Virginia. <coughs> so today, that's all from me. That's all from Big E. I hope you like the podcast. We're on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher. If you want me to be on another app, just let me know. If you have topics that you'd like me to cover in the future, uh, just also reach out to me and let me know. Uh, it's been fun. I've been uh, teaching in Fairfax this month, so I got to meet a lot of cool people up in Fairfax. And I'll be out uh, traveling, of course, around teaching all over the Commonwealth after that. So uh, for now, everybody out there, uh, take care. Enjoy the coming spring. Stay safe and don't get captured.